Lisa likes the window seat at night, the lights below that tell her she's nearly home. Then there's the lights she can't see, the runway lights we power to bring her plane safely into land. And because at Energia we also power all of Ireland's streetlights, Lisa's taxi home is that bit safer too. And no prizes for guessing who powers her house. Welcome home, Lisa. Energia, the power behind your power. Welcome to another edition of the Dynasty Blueprint. I'm your host, Ryan McDowell, joined again, as always, by Matt Williamson. Matt, how's it going today? It's going well. It's funny because you have that long weekend, and it happens to me every year, and you kind of take it easy on Labor Day, and then, man, I got hit in the face with a million podcasts (laughs) a day and 9,000 things to do, and there's a game in two days, and holy smokes, it's the time to go. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine. He was asking me what I thought about the game on Thursday and I realized I didn't even know who was playing on Thursday. So yeah, I don't know the matchups yet either. That's like, I need to do that now. It, it is upon us, and we, uh, we need to get ready. To help us get ready and uh, to help our listeners get ready, we've got a great guest again today. Last week, we talked a little redraft, and today we're going to focus on some DFS, some daily fantasy, and we've got one of the best around for that, TJ Hernandez from 4for4.com. He's also the co-host of the DFS MVP podcast over there at 4 by 4 TJ, welcome in. What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm in the same boat as you guys. Like, I, I didn't really take the weekend off for the holiday, but I woke up today, and we're in it now. It's, week, it's officially week one. Reading articles, it's crazy. I'm, I, haven't stopped, uh, I haven't stopped today. Yeah, the fans don't care. They want it now. Ready to go, though. I'm stoked. Hey, TJ, I mean, I don't have a lot of DFS experience, so please coach me up as we go. I'm pretty excited to you know, hear what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. It's like, like I said, we just kind of started the stuff, so I'm, I'm just getting into my research now, but uh, I think there's some pretty good general takeaways that we could get into uh, in a little bit. Well, TJ, last year I found myself playing more DFS than I had in past years, and I definitely relied on your podcast with Chris Raybon to kind of coach me up on that, like Matt said, and I found that so valuable. And you guys have been doing some episodes recently that I suggest everyone listen to, whether you're a DFS player or not. The Positional Strategies podcast were were excellent. Thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, Chris and I have the luxury of uh, not not writing or playing DFS for any other sports. So we just get six months to do nothing but come up with crazy ideas. <laughs> so that's basically, that's basically what uh, what you see. Well, your, your crazy ideas resulted in some great content over at 4 by 4 We're going to talk about a lot of that today. But last year, as, as I said, I got more into DFS, and I found myself really becoming a better Dynasty player because of it. So a lot of the research that that you guys all put into it, I found that helped that helped me on a weekly basis, and that's really why I wanted to have you on today, just to talk about how 
whether you're a daily fantasy player or not, you can use that information that you and, and so many others are putting out to help you make weekly decisions or, or even decisions long-term because so much of what I've seen from daily fantasy, it's all about trends and picking up on those mm-hmm. trends. And sometimes I feel like dynasty players are ahead of the game in that way and that they're grabbing players before a seasonal guy or a DFS guy might even know who those players are. But on the other end of that, we also hang on to those guys sometimes too long and, and ignore, you know, ignore the data that's smacking us in the face. So um, I just want to hear from you uh, some ways that, that you found, because I know you play seasonal as well, some ways that you found that your daily fantasy research has helped you in those seasonal leagues, especially when it comes to setting lineups. Yeah, and I mean, I I mainly play redraft. I'm actually not in any dynasty leagues at this point, but uh, the lessons that you take from building lineups in DFS, it, they translate to any format where you're actually setting lineups. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you're playing redraft or if you're in a Devi league. I think the research uh, kind of or what we're looking at, and you made an interesting point just now about how if you're a dynasty guy really entrenched in it, you could really have a hard time letting go of, uh, of certain players. And that translates to, to lineup setting. I mean, how many times throughout the year do you hear somebody say, Oh, can I really sit uh, whoever it might be? Marshawn Lynch for, for this guy, I drafted him in the second round, but uh, <laughs> that's a sunk cost. That's a sunk cost. Like in, when you get to week eight, it doesn't matter when you drafted that guy. It just matters uh, how you're going to win that game. And I think, playing DFS is really outside of just numbing all of my other feelings has taken away that emotional uh, roller coaster of trying to decide between player X and Y and just really uh, being able to get into the data. And I, I think we'll go by this step by step, but that's one thing that I've really noticed since I've got into DFS and translated it into my uh, season long leagues and, and redraft leagues that when I'm setting lineups, uh, there, there are a lot of data points that I can look at and that are really guiding my decisions and make my decisions a lot easier instead of sitting here and looking at projections when, I mean, and if, we're, if we have a decision to make, it's because a guy is probably projected within uh, decimal points of each other in terms of fantasy points, right? So uh, some of the stuff that we go over, I think, can really help uh, make those decisions a little bit easier. I guess I feel like as a dynasty player specifically, my biggest weakness is that weekly lineup decision. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have some pretty good teams that I've, I've built up over the years. And with that comes some challenging decisions and you're sitting stud players that would be first or second round draft picks. But I have a tendency just to rely on, you know, the start your studs theory and and not dig into some of that data like you guys are in the DFS world. So again, as I kind of got a little bit more into that world last year, I found my weekly lineup decisions changing. So I think that's, that's really helpful. And uh, as I said, we're going to hear some more from you uh, today about all that. Ryan, real quick. I mean, TJ doesn't play dynasty, but I'm really glad you mentioned that because one of the things I've found myself doing in the couple of years that I've been in dynasty is I build this roster that I absolutely love in the, and then sometimes by week five, I'm like, I'm not sure who I can start. All these guys are young and, you know, like I run out of starters real quick. Yeah. Even, you know, even in the dynasty world, I heard it last week on the DLF podcast. One of the guys mentioned, you know, this time of year, we're all setting lineups. If, whether you're talking about dynasty redraft or 
or even DFS. We're all putting that lineup in for Sunday and for Thursday, and we're kind of all on equal footing regardless of our strategy or even the format that we play. TJ, one thing that is maybe the biggest change for me uh, and, and something I mentioned to you earlier, I'd never even considered in my analysis, uh, whether it be weekly analysis or, or even longer term than that, is the information that, that's given to us by, by Vegas. You know, the, the implied points, the, the favorites, all of that information I found last year can be very useful. Um, so talk about how you use that on, on a weekly basis in making lineup decisions. Yeah, so uh, kind of like we mentioned before, there's going to be a lot of specific data points for each position that we can look at. Um, but one that really stands out is the Vegas lines. And uh, I think about the Vegas lines is in DFS, we're looking at them and we're trying to make these decisions and we have this price involved. So uh, there's this whole nother layer to trying to figure out who a good play is. But uh, in in redraft, our, our decisions are fewer, so that may be uh, easier. You know, when you have 100 decisions, you can never figure out what to do. When you have two, uh, it's a little easier to narrow down. But uh, I think we still should be looking at these projection models. Uh, a lot of them are really good. And uh, be looking at Vegas and saying, oh, this guy's team is projected to score more points, so I'm going to start. Eli Manning over Cam Newton. That's not how it works. But when you're in these really close situations and you aren't sure what you're trying to uh, accomplish or you're just looking at two guys projected for the same amount of points, we can really glean some insight from these Vegas lines. I think a classic example is uh, the running back. If you have two running backs, uh, and I mentioned before, we are uh, kind of trying to maximize our floor. We talked about this uh, before we jumped on the pod. or a, a redraft league is basically a single head-to-head. You just need to beat one guy. So say you have two guys who are both projected for 12 points at the running back position. Um, but then we could look at the Vegas lines, and if if those guys are expected to see similar workloads, but one of them is on a team that's favored by five or six points, uh, now I have a really easy decision because late in the game, fourth quarter, I expect that player on the team that's favored to still be on the field, still be racking up points, whereas the other guy, if he's on a team that's losing, uh, his floor might be really, really low. Think of like a Jeremy Langford this week. A lot of people are going to probably be making some flex flex decisions with him in their lineups. Uh, The Bears are favored, uh, are underdogs by, I think, five on the road in Houston. Uh, Chance that... uh, getting no carry so he's just not helping your team uh, after the third quarter I want a guy that's going to be on the field all four quarters uh, and that's just the running back position but that's a, a really great example of of how you can look at those Vegas lines and uh, make those close decisions DJ when you're when you're talking Vegas lines are you really just looking at you know the, the point spread or are you also looking at over under I mean I know Evan Silva's big on that you know that this is the highest over-under of the week. You know, chances are there's going to be more points and chances are there will be more fantasy production. Or are you even taking a step, step further and looking at prop bets? You know, Antonio Brown's over-under for catches this week is seven and a half. Yeah, I know um, prominent DFS guys that pay attention to the prop bets, but there's also a reason that the prop bets have the lowest uh, max that you could bet on in Vegas. It's because they're very, very right. fluky and hard, hard to predict. Uh, but talking about the over-unders, 
I kind of like to take it a step further, but in, in a different sense, combining with them with the Vegas lines and, and getting an implied total. So if you're finding an offense that um, games where there's a couple offenses that are, or a couple games that are projected for say, uh, say 48 points, but there's one team that's favored by seven and one, the other one's a pick them. Well, that team that's favored by seven is going to score expected to score a lot more points, even though the, over under uh, is a very high uh, total for both games, but what what Evan likes to talk about, and I think that he really likes to harp on in terms of the high scoring games, are those correlation plays. And I think this this does have a lot of value for redraft. Again, when we're splitting hairs, when we're in a coin flip situation, uh, the reason these high over under games are very important is because if one offense is scoring a lot of points and this is especially true if the spread is very close if we're expecting a very close game that's where we could pinpoint those shootouts and usually the player that's going to uh, benefit are is the opposing quarterback and the opposing wide receiver one so if you're in a streaming quarterback situation and you're looking for a guy uh, off the waivers and you pinpoint that high scoring game um, even if that team is is an underdog by a little bit uh there's a high correlation between one quarterback that scores uh, at least 25 points. We're talking DraftKings points here, but but pretty close to most standard scoring leagues. Uh, a huge percent of the opposing quarterback score at least 20 points. So knowing knowing those little nuggets can really help you um, help you find something that you're not going to be able to find in just a traditional projection model, and, and I think it's really important. All right, I mentioned, TJ, that another – important thing for DFS players and and therefore for seasonal and dynasty players as well are, are some of these trends that you've noticed. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you spent the past few months looking at some of these and looking over your, some of your recent articles over at four by four. I just want to talk about some of the things you noticed. Let, let's start with the coaching uh, changes that have happened this off season. You've written a series basically mentioning how some of those coaching changes could affect the teams and, and what we can expect as a result of that. And we'd just love to hear your insight about a couple of those. Let's start with the Dolphins. Uh, new head coach Adam Gaze is there. Everybody's basically expecting a, a huge offensive production from Tannehill, those wide receivers. What are you seeing in Miami? Yeah, I mean – I, I did these articles on um, on five new play callers and new situations because uh, those are situations that are really hard to figure out. And the two that have really um, wavered from when I wrote these articles are the Dolphins and the Titans because we've seen so much roster turnover, um, especially when we're talking about uh, the Dolphins here. We expected uh, Devontae Parker to, to be – a pretty significant uh, cog in this offense when Gase took over because he traditionally likes that big X receiver. Uh, small sample size, but we've seen him really favor Demarius Thomas and Alshon Jeffrey when he's had the chance to to target that guy. Uh, but one thing that has held very consistent with Gase is that he's going to implement his running back in all aspects of the game. And this situation got a little, a little fuzzy with um, the signing of Arian Foster, but I think the main thing that we can't expect – is that healthy? He is going to be a huge part of the passing game, and probably Gase wants to get him uh, as much work as possible. His running backs, his running back one, uh, usually averages 
percent of the of the backfield touches, which is a really high number for uh, any running back. One, a lot of people like to throw around the uh, this running back's going to see two thirds or seventy five percent of the workload. Like that number just doesn't happen. If you're over sixty percent of the running back touches, that's a very high number, and that's kind of the number uh, Gase's top running back has hovered around. Now, not to say that Arian Foster is going to stay healthy because we know that's a huge question mark, um, but given the choice. Gase wants one guy out there the majority of the time. So I think uh, you're going to invest the high draft pick in him. But if, if you have Foster, I think you should be, feel very comfortable rolling him out. And if you did handcuff or, or draft Ajayi as a flyer, I think he's going to be worth holding on to because if something does happen to Foster, uh, we want that backup running back in the Gase offense. What's your take on the receivers, though? You touched on Parker. You didn't mention Stills, who looks to be getting a lot of touches, and Carew's looming. I mean, I think it's going to be a situation where um, we're going to see the target share spread out very thin. Like I said, Gase has traditionally really favored that big X receiver, but it doesn't look like uh, Parker's done enough to be the guy that could be the red zone threat that Adam Gase really prefers. Uh, so – is going to be a situation where outside of Landry, there just aren't enough guys seeing enough consistent targets where I'm going to be wanting to plug them in my lineup at least early in the year. TJ, you mentioned the Titans as another team. Maybe you've changed your tune on over the past few weeks since since we've seen these preseason games. You know, they've, they've got what they dubbed this exotic smash mouth offense and everybody kind of mm-hmm. snickered at that and rolled their eyes, and then they came out and just pounded the ball basically in every preseason game. Uh, DeMarco Murray looked great. Derrick Henry looked great. He's been one of the stories of the preseason, at least from a dynasty perspective. So with this new information, what are you thinking about Tennessee? Yeah, so one thing that can be a little tricky about Tennessee is last year they think like 62% of their plays. So they were near the bottom of the league in rush percentage, but they also only won three games. Uh, so if we adjust their, their rush percentage for a win total, they were actually uh, top three or top 12 in the league in terms of win adjusted rush percentage. So their, their average uh, rush percentage, uh, their, their average versus the league um, in both wins and losses. And even if this team only wins two or three more games, five or six total, uh, for them, given what happened when Mike Malarkey took over uh, last year, for them to reach a 44 45% uh, rush share, and that would put them squarely in the top half of the league in terms of, of rush percentage. And um, I think that's very doable with – Marcus Mariota, who is progressing as a second-year quarterback, uh, they're going to rely heavily on Delaney Walker again, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch to expect them to uh, make the jump at least in a, a couple wins. It's it's really hard to be a team that only wins three games in the NFL. There's so much parity. So as bad as they are, um, I think we can adjust that rush total a little bit and see both running backs uh, be really viable options. I agree with you that Tennessee almost has to win more than three games. You're right. I mean, it's hard to do, especially in back-to-back years. I'm curious how you account for um, the chance, and we don't know this, but will Marcus Mariota run the ball 15% more this year? You know, design quarterback runs, read option. They, they kind of stayed away from that his rookie year, but 
you know, if he does, that could open up more room for Henry and Murray, or it could possibly cut in. I'm just curious how you factor that in. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of those, though they will be designed, I think a lot of it will just happen uh, on its own, assuming they tell Mariota to take off when he has the chance. I think the reason they might have shied away from it a little bit is because he was banged up so early in the season and throughout the season that it wasn't necessarily a situation where they were just trying to protect their young asset, but he was just already hurt, and uh, there was it was just not part of the not possible for them to do it as much. Uh, I think fully healthy with the full year under under his belt. Uh, we should see a few more rushes. I don't think that'll take away so much from the running backs as much as it will boost Mariota's uh, streaming value or value in two quarterback leagues. I think that's a really strong example of exactly what we're talking about in this episode, how going deeper with some of this DFS research it can really be beneficial because uh, what you mentioned is is really – how I'd been viewing the Titans. Yes, they say they want to run more, but they're going to be a bad team. They're going to have to throw to try to stay in games, and they're not going to be able to run. Therefore, you know, Murray and even Henry are not going to have this value that they potentially could have. So the the information that you mentioned with the rush percentage and the win-adjusted rush percentage is it's just really, really great stuff. Let's move on to another series that you've done this offseason – touchdown regression candidates and you've done one of these for each position i think so often when we hear that word regression we think okay their their stats are going to going to drop they can't reproduce those same numbers but that term regression can be viewed both negatively and positively and you've mentioned players on both ends players who could see fewer touchdowns players who should score more based on uh, not only the league average but their personal history in their career. So let's start with the quarterbacks. The first one I want to talk about is Matthew Stafford. You know, obviously Calvin Johnson is gone. He's always been a volume guy, but you see some potential for negative regression from Stafford this year. Yeah. So this is a series that um, I really wanted to dig into just because you hear so many people say that touchdowns are hard to repeat or they're hard to predict. And I think the reason people say that is because there's so many times that there's uh, there are outliers in touchdowns either on the good side or on the bad side. So a couple of touchdowns in either direction make the numbers look very fluky. But really what's happening is they're just coming back down to earth and it's not even in terms of in terms of how often they score these touchdowns. So a guy like Matthew Stafford last year is is a perfect example. Uh, even with Calvin Johnson banged up, we saw Stafford uh, throw touchdowns on five percent, five and a half percent of his passes, and he converted thirty-six percent of his red zone scores or red zone passes into scores. And his career rate is a full percentage below uh, his touchdown rate last year, and his career touchdown rate in the red zone is only 25%, which is right around the league average. So even with Calvin Johnson banged up, Stafford was converting touchdowns at a ridiculously high rate uh, last year. And it's just a rate that isn't sustainable. I mentioned the league average is around 25% uh, for the red zone. Uh, without Calvin there, even with Marvin Jones, who's a pretty good red zone target, and Eric Ebron, who's been efficient in the red zone on a very small sample, uh, it's just a number that's very hard to maintain. He would he would need to have uh, a ton more volume in an offense that already relied on the pass a lot. So it's just going to be really hard for him to repeat those numbers 
uh, at least in the touchdown column from last year. That, that makes perfect sense. And my only question about the Lions is they had two different coordinators for half the years. You know, does that make it a heck of a lot harder? I mean, it's a lot smaller sample size with Cooter, or how do you combine those two things? Because the way they played football was so dramatically different. Yeah, that's another thing. Their uh, total uh, pass volume numbers actually slightly went down once Jim Bob Cooter took over. And anytime you can say Jim Bob Cooter in a podcast, I think you should do it as much as possible. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so when Jim Bob Cooter took over, their their passing volume went down a little bit. But I think that was also a function of their schedule got a little bit easier. So they were in uh, – they won a few more games. Uh, they actually won a lot more games come stretch than they did the first half of the season. And uh, we, we talked about doing DFS research. One thing you find out a lot is when teams are winning, they run more. They're not winning because they're running. So uh, it makes sense that uh, their passing game got a little more efficient and they ran a little more because they were ahead late in games. Uh, so small sample size. I think uh, we should pretty much expect uh, – Play calling, play split, similar to what we've seen. There was no dramatic shift once he took over. Uh, there's nobody that stepped in that looks like they're going to be a running back that's going to uh, force them to run the ball. A ton. I don't think anybody's overly excited about Abdullah. So I think they'll be just as pass heavy as we've ever seen. That adds up. Uh, and you know what else gets you ahead? Loot crate. Yep, yep, yep. Looking for gear, collectibles, houseware, and more for your favorite pop culture franchises? We've got you covered. Loot Crate offers a range of geek and gamer items for less than 20 bucks a month. Want to bring your loot to the next level? Get a bigger box with even more bigger loot, more and bigger loot from Loot Crate DX. If you're more than the type to wear your geeky heart on your sleeve, then Loot Wear, our monthly wearables and accessory subscription, is what that's what you're looking for. Get ready for September's high-octane theme, Speed. This month's Loot Crate has a high-octane assortment of goodies from Batman, CW's The Flash and Arrow, Battlestar Galactica, Iron Man, and Gone in 60 Seconds. If you have a style need, you'll love our Speed Lootwear collection, featuring Sonic socks for when you got to go fast, Transformers wearable for your world-saving needs, and winning Mario Kart tee and more. This Loot Crate connection is going to zoom away quick. So what you got to do is you make sure you head over to lootcrate.com slash dynasty blueprint and enter the code dynasty blueprint to save two bucks a month off your already less than $20 new subscription. Do it now. TJ, let's move over to the running back position. Uh, Again, one of the hottest names in dynasty after his big season last year is David Johnson, but you see some potential negative regression when it comes to touchdowns for him. Yeah, uh, David Johnson's a really interesting case because he did such a small uh, window, I think, over like a five or six game stretch. So uh, what I'm really what I really was pointing out with David Johnson in this article is that uh, I, I just don't think you can expect him to put up points at the rate he did. And that's really what this whole art, uh, this whole series really looked at. Uh, the interesting thing about Johnson, unlike someone like Gurley who had very similar touchdown rate numbers, uh, Johnson can make up for it this season uh, with, vo- with volume. So he can reach his overall touchdown numbers he did last year, but his rate was so high. He converted uh, 38% of his touches inside the 10 yard line into touchdowns, 30% of his red zone touches, 
Uh, the league average for both of those numbers is 27% inside the 10, 15% inside the red zone for running backs. So uh, you can see how he was really just scoring at a, at a high rate. But I think over the course of the season, uh, he could be fine, but I don't think he's going to have as many of those games. And I don't think this is a surprise to anybody. He's just not going to have those games where he's basically winning the week for you single-handedly. It's just impossible for a running back to have that type of performance that consistently. And another thing, if we just look at this offense as a whole, uh, I, I had someone from every position except for tight end uh, as a regression candidate. So this offense was just pumping out ridiculous numbers last year, and I think they can still be good and very efficient, just not to the level that they were last year. Carson Palmer had the highest red zone touchdown rate of his career. Larry Fitzgerald had the highest red zone touchdown rate of his career. And we have that many players putting up numbers uh, that are that great. Everyone's going to benefit. So I think the whole offense has to come down to earth a little bit, but uh, all that being said, I think I think DJ still has the running back one overall, still well well within his range of outcomes. I just don't think he's going to blow the field away like he did over the last five weeks. So what about what about a guy like Devontae Freeman? Uh, you didn't mention him in this article, but he kind of had a similar run to Johnson just earlier in the season. He stretched things out and was a little more consistent over that 2015 year. Do you see him coming close to repeating that? I mean, he kind of did the same thing that uh, that DJ did. He had like a three or four game stretch there, like we'd never seen before. It seemed like every time we turn on the TV, he was scoring his third touchdown of the game. But uh, I think that he actually his uh, at least his, the rate at which he was scoring touchdowns. It's just that he was getting so much volume close to the goal line, both uh, in the receiving game and in the rushing game. And I think that red zone volume, uh, I think he can replicate that because outside of Julio, I don't know that they have a target that they're really going to rely on. Sanu has kind of been a big play guy in Cincinnati. Marvin Jones uh, was really the red zone guy there, and obviously Tyler Eifert. Uh, and then Jacob Tammy isn't really going isn't a formidable name by any stretch of the imagination. And although they do like Tevin Coleman and want to get him involved, he hasn't shown anything to suggest that he's going to be a dominant force in the red zone. So I think that uh, that Freeman could definitely replicate his numbers from last year, or at least come close to it. Just again, maybe not with those huge three or four touchdown games. You just can never expect those. I think those are excellent points, not to mention I think their offensive line should absolutely be better with Alex Mack. You know, second year in this offensive scheme, I got to think Matt Ryan's going to be more comfortable. But all that being said, I think, I, I can't think about Freeman and not think, man, he was not the same player at the end of the year, and he's only a, what, 205-pound Ahmad Bradshaw-type body. You know, I just wonder how long he can be as productive as you mentioned. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really uh, good point because his efficiency, at least in yards per opportunity, both targets and rushes did go down. I think Alex Mack is probably going to prove to be the most important free agent signing for real football and for fantasy purposes uh, of the offseason. He's when he left, uh, when he got hurt, when he was playing with the Browns, they saw a tremendous drop off in rushing efficiency. I think that was in 2014. Um, but he's a fantastic center. And even without him, the, the Falcons were one of the most 
efficient teams in the league in terms of moving the ball up and down the field. They ranked, I think, fourth in yards per drive, but they just had some really bad luck in the red zone. Uh, Matt Ryan had some really bad turnovers, and they had a few fumbles, and uh, a few turnovers in the red zone could really skew your end-of-season numbers. So I think they're going to be fine, and the touchdown opportunities are going to be there for Freeman still. But, yeah, that that health and taking a beating uh, down the stretch might be why we've heard them mention getting Tevin Coleman a little bit involved. I don't think Coleman's going to come in there and get a 50-50 share. But like I said, even with 60% of the work in the backfield, any running back could still do a lot of damage. One player you mentioned in this article who could see some positive touchdown regression is one of Matt's favorites. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on TJ Yeldon. Yeah, so – yeah, so uh, before I even get into the numbers on Yeldon, the interesting thing is people think that he's going to like lose any chance to score because uh, they're bringing in Chris Ivory, and Chris Ivory's not good in short yardage himself. Like for some reason, there's this weird like idea that he's this pounder, and he's not. If you look at his conversion rates on uh, on like goal to go or short yardage situations he's well below the league average so uh and dominate the red zone even if they give him the opportunity early he'll just be below average like he's always been and and yeldon will get those opportunities but uh the interesting thing about yeldon is that if we look at his red zone opportunity last year just uh, i came up with a metric called red zone expected value where you look at touches and targets uh different starting points in the red zone. So obviously the further you are from the goal line, the the less chance you have to score. And Yeldon's expected value was exactly the same as Danny Woodhead. Danny Woodhead just converted those touchdowns. So Yeldon last year, uh, and that was with an offense that threw over 80% in the red zone. So even if that percentage comes back to earth a little bit, that's just going to be more opportunities for the running backs. And he – he only converted uh, 18% of his touches inside the 10. He only converted 7% of his touches inside the red zone, like really, really far below the league average. And even if you're really bad, it's just hard to stay that inefficient. His sample size wasn't huge, um, and he doesn't have a huge sample size over his career. So I think uh, even with the same amount of opportunities, he can, he can surprise people a little bit this year. So, TJ, I assume that goes hand-in-hand hand on why you think Allen Robinson is going to have a negative regression, although I didn't see Bortles' name. I would think he would fall into that as well. Yeah, so this was this study looked only at the red zone data. That's why you didn't see Bortles' okay. name. But he, he came up, if you look at the overall efficiency of the offense and looking in terms of how much they threw inside of the red zone, how much that regresses, and then how much uh, the board while behind, uh, those things would all point to, to – um, Portals regressing, but uh, he just didn't have a lot of, of red zone regression. So that's why he didn't come up. But I think the Jaguars, uh, I think they scored 20 of their 35 passing touchdowns while trailing by seven or more. So with their beefed up defense, I think that even if they, even if they are only a six win team, it won't be in blowout fashion as much as possible. And again, I think Allen Robinson is someone that profiles as one of the best red zone targets we'll probably see uh, over the next – he looks very much like a Des Bryant, but Des Bryant, who's one of the best red zone targets we have seen, uh, converts his red zone looks at about a 40% rate. 
Allen Robinson converted at 57%. The only guy that's even sniffing that is Rob Gronkowski, and he's at like 49%. So uh, the two best red zone targets that we've probably ever seen, uh, Allen Robinson blew them out of the water last year. So uh, as good as he is, you just can't expect him to keep that pace up. Uh, He's going to be fine. I think he's still well worth where where he's being drafted. I have plenty of Allen Robinson on my teams, but uh, I don't think a a 15-touchdown season is in the mix this year. Just as that big touchdown season from Robinson pushed him into the top five dynasty wide receivers over the past year, I I think the same happens this year for Mike Evans, and he's one of the players – He's one of the players you named as uh, someone who could see some positive touchdown regression. He looks great. Yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, I was getting mad that he was doing well in the preseason because he's right. a guy that yeah. I, yeah. I want on all my teams. I'm like, stop doing good. People people are going to know about you. Uh, but, no, he he's a guy that we saw dominate in college, scoring touchdowns, uh, catching from Johnny Manziel. He was fantastic his first year in the NFL, converting 33% of his red zone looks. Then last year he had Jameis Winston. So we had a little bit of a, a chicken or egg situation and I actually mentioned Winston as a positive touchdown regression candidate in the same series. So was it Winston throwing inaccurate balls? Was it Evans being – Uh, inefficient in the red zone was a little bit of both. Uh, I think it was probably a little bit of both. Uh, Evans only converted 11% of his red zone looks into scores. Someone that profiles like Mike Evans isn't going to stay that far below the league. The average wide receiver is converting 25%. Evans is above average in the red zone. He had the same expected value as Odell Beckham in the red zone. Uh, I think he has the talent, the size, now the quarterback to match those touchdown totals of someone like an Odell Beckham. So, yeah, I, I love Mike Evans this year. And, and I think our dynasty fans just need to remember, too, I mean, for a third-year receiver, he's remarkably young, and he's got what I think is very well could be the next great quarterback throwing to him for all these years. I mean, he's set up perfectly for the long run. Yeah, I, I love this. I love this offense overall, really. I, I think um, I, I have a lot of Charles Sims. I don't draft too many early running back, so I don't have much Doug Martin. But, uh, yeah, Jameis is only going to get better. He was fantastic last year for a rookie. I don't – like, for some reason, drunk on the 2014 uh, wide receiver rookie class, and then we had RG3 and Andrew Luck a couple of years ago. So I think we have these – way lofty expectations for rookies. Jameis was really good for a rookie last year, so I think it's only going to get better. TJ, at the tight end position, you mentioned uh, Tyler Eifert and Jordan Reed as a couple of players who could see some negative touchdown regression. I think those both make sense. I'm more interested in a pair you mentioned at the positive touchdown side. Let's start with Jared Cook, the new tight end of the Packers. Yeah, so uh, Cook's a guy, and he didn't even have that much volume in the red zone last year. And that one of the problems with study and projecting it to the tight end position is they just don't see um, enough volume to really come up with some really solid expectations where running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers, they're just seeing more looks so you can get a better idea of what their true rate should be. But Jared Cook saw the same kind of volume in the red zone as Julius Thomas, Martellus Bennett, Eric Ebron, who didn't set the world on fire, but they had pretty respectable seasons. And with that same amount of volume, Jared Cook didn't convert a touchdown in the red zone. So uh, obviously that had a lot to do with their quarterback 
play last year, and now he gets to go to who I think is the best quarterback in the league, maybe one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen. And they brought him in as an insurance policy. I don't think a lot of people realize this. To Jordy Nelson, they plan on stretching the field with Jared Cook, running him up the seam. Uh, I think there is a lot of upside for Jared Cook. We saw what Richard Rodgers did last year. Uh, so many top 10 tight end seasons just off, uh, tight end weeks just off the touchdown volume alone. So uh, if he has the chance, Aaron Rodgers will look for the tight end near the end zone. He just hasn't had that chance that much since he's taken over. Uh, in Green Bay, um, but I mean, if I think it's a situation where athletically, if if Rodgers can do it, I think Jared Cook can do it too. I'm highly intrigued with Cook. I mean, this guy couldn't have had worse surroundings around him, and I'm not making excuses for him. I mean, but he is a total freak, and I think people mm-hmm. forget just how big and athletic he is. And if you remember, I'm McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers, they used your Michael Finley extremely well. You know, they put him on one side, three receivers on the other. You know, yep. tells them so much pre-snap. Uh, McD, what's the what's the buying price on Cook nowadays for uh, in Dynasty? Is he is he rocketing up boards or is he just slowly creeping? No, I think he's I think he's slowly moving up. He's he's one of these guys like you know Jeff Janis is one on the same team. Kristen Michael is another. These guys have their supporters. You know, their truthers. You might even see the the Twitter lingo. But most of the dynasty community is just not sold on these guys because they've never really done it on the field. So because of that, I would say, you know, you could easily get cooked for a second round pick if you want to do that. And maybe even cheaper when you're talking dynasty. Two thirds? uh, Probably. Yeah, with that, with next year's rookie class, probably so. I've never been a believer in Cook either. You know, he, he gets hurt. He has he has these huge games and. You know, TJ, this might be something, I don't know, this might be something you factor in, but I think two or three of Cook's biggest games ever have been have come in week one. For whatever reason, he starts out well and, and can't continue that. Yeah, I've, uh, I've this point. is the first season I'm not writing a tight end streaming column for four for four, uh, but I think I've probably spent more ink on Jared Cook trying to tout him as a streamer than maybe any player I've written up over the last two years. So I'm like, maybe it's just me dying to be right for once. (laughs) Well, the other thing that is important with Cook is, you know, it's been said before how inactive the Packers are when it comes to free agency. They just, they, they don't sign free agents. They just totally avoid that. And, you know, we saw the stat every big game they had last year uh, of the high percentage of players that were homegrown, that were drafted or signed as, as undrafted free agents, but so few of them uh, were free agents from other teams. So when they are active in free agency, when they do sign a player, it gets my attention. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Let's move on now. And and you kind of alluded to this earlier um, when we were talking about how, how Vegas can, uh, you know, help us make projections and make decisions on lineups. But one other series I wanted to look at was your big game profile. So again, you did these for each position and you dug into the data from DraftKings and FanDuel looking at players. I think players that had finished in the top four of their position, I believe it was. And basically you found some traits that those players shared from each position. So just share some of those with us, starting with the quarterback position. Yeah, so uh, the thing about these profiles is I was just looking at all positions where 
they can really score. I was looking specifically at, at GPPs and, and DFS, so uh, looking at the t- top players at each position, but I do think there's a lot of value to be had uh, in any type of league where you're setting a regular lineup. Uh, this has a lot of uh, these, these have, have a lot of implications for something like a big tournament league if you're playing in maybe a, a FFPC or something like that. Or even if you're in a redraft league where you're just trying to beat a, a is heavily favored, you just need a lot of upside. So uh, some main points that I took away from quarterbacks where these big games are really coming from it. Going back to Vegas lines is the highest scoring quarterbacks most of the time, uh, almost 70% of the time, are coming from winning teams. And I think that's important because we did touch on uh, the Vegas lines and implied point totals and over-unders. But if you really want those top, top guys, uh, garbage time isn't going to help uh, the opposing quarterback. And can help the receiver, and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but usually you want your quarterback to be in a very positive uh, efficient situation. Um, if if your quarterback's getting blown out, it's going to be really hard for him to do that against a defense that is basically you hear the the uh, let the defense pin their ears back and get after the quarterback. That really does have a negative effect on the quarterback. So we can use those Vegas lines to look for quarterbacks that are often going to uh, be in situations where they're likely to win. And another thing I think is really important to point out and. I don't think people um, maybe make this distinction between positions as much as they should. Uh, we look at matchup data so much in our season-long projections or redraft, but uh, more than any other position, quarterback. Uh, a receiver can dominate a, a lesser cornerback, especially if he's one of those top three or four guys. Uh, running backs can benefit from game script. Tight ends can score a touchdown. Um, get lucky and shoot up the leaderboard. Quarterback needs to be consistent throughout the whole game, and he's not going to – one 80-yard touchdown isn't going to make a quarterback's day. He needs to be good all day. Um, and then kind of on the similar note, avoid quarterbacks that are likely to throw interceptions if you really need those top-scoring guys. And that might seem obvious, but I think the reason isn't as obvious to people. Um, and it's not because you're getting negative points for throwing interceptions, but th- – the correlation of losing two drives and putting the other team in good field position and increasing the chance of falling way behind can have such a bad domino effect on quarterbacks that if they have of throwing one or two interceptions, which seems hard to predict, but if they're big underdogs and if they're even a little bit accident prone, um, really quick so i think that's something to really pay attention to that maybe not everybody is doing so you're when you're setting your lineup even like for for uh redraft you're not going to be like ah that's my quarterback one it's a bad matchup but i'll just throw him in there anyways he's my quarterback one yeah i mean i think i kind of um benefit from something like this a lot because I'm, I never have a quarterback where I'm like, I have to play this guy because I'm waiting so long for quarterback. I did my FFPC draft last night and I took Ryan Fitzpatrick in the 18th round. Like basically I had to take a quarterback. So that's when I finally took one. Uh, so in those situations, I'm like, yeah, the numbers tell me to, to throw this guy in. I'm doing it. So let's really be specific here. Are you benching Cam Newton this week against Denver? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> okay. 
the thing about Cam is though he can he can give you 50, 50 yards on the ground and a touchdown on the ground. So that's like even in a bad matchup, like that that Konami code that we've heard so famously on Twitter is so important to the quarterback position. Let's move on to the running back position. One of the biggest uh, takeaways that I had from this article, and I think that you had as well, is that the home team plays a big favorite when it comes mm-hmm. to finding a, a quality running back on the week. This is another thing that uh, can really, I think, give anyone playing in traditional leagues a big edge because it's just not something you're talked about when uh, outside of DFS. But running backs that are at home are in better positions to win, and game script is so important for running back. Uh, I talked about it earlier that when you can find that running back that's going to be on the winning team where they're going to continue to run the ball late, especially if you're in a non-PPR league where those rushing yards and those late attempts that could turn into another touchdown, those touchdowns are so important and that late game uh, usage is so important that finding someone that's on a winning team is going to be huge. This is going to be mitigated a little bit in a PPR league, but even if it's just half PPR, uh, the chance to have that fourth quarter of just him pounding the ball away is, is going to be really make a difference in, uh, in fantasy. At the wide receiver position, I noticed that you suggested that we can ignore the implied point totals when it comes to looking for a wide receiver Again, we talked about it earlier that that was one of the things we would want to look at and, and maybe making some decisions. But your your data found it's maybe not as important at the wide receiver spot. Yes. So there's a little bit of a selection bias here because I, again, was only looking at the top receivers, uh, top scoring receivers. And most of the time, the top scoring guys are going to be the guys you would expect, the Julios, the Odells, the Antonios. Uh, so in those situations, the – I mentioned this with quarterback. Um, Garbage time is bad for quarterbacks, but it can be really good for wide receivers. And I'm just going to use a Chris Raybon example that he loves to use all the time. If we're in garbage time in the fourth quarter uh, and your quarterback throws for, um, I don't know, for 50 yards the only thing that quarterback got was his, if you're one, one point for every 25 yards, he got two points. If, those completions for 40 yards goes to say AJ Green and you're in PPR. He just got you eight points on that drive. So four times as much as the quarterback. So that's why we see we can see someone in a low scoring game, especially a top receiver, still perform very well. Um, I should note that I've extended this study and that overall scoring for the wide receiver position does go up when the implied point total is higher. Uh, but the it's just that top wide top wide receiver target that really benefits in garbage time. But if you're making a decision between, I don't know, a flex position and it's a second or third wide receiver on a team, you still do want the guy on the higher in the higher scoring game. I would imagine. I'm just thinking, sitting here thinking about it. It's the first I ever thought about it, but I imagine late in games, if you're a defensive coordinator and you, you're playing the Bengals, and for three quarters or a half, you're scheming to take away AJ Green, maybe you just lighten up on that and have more prevent principles and don't stress one player so much not to mention you know you just want the game to get over with keep them bound yeah i mean how many times do we see it there's three minutes left in the game and then whoever's down by 10 they drive right down the field but they're down by 10 they're down by two scores it doesn't matter if aj green gets his six for 60 on that drive but uh real thing but just don't get confused and and use it with your quarterback because it doesn't matter for him (laughs) 
Let's wrap up today with the, the tight end position, the big game profile. And my favorite point you made here was that we could even target tight ends on teams with low projected totals. That's, that's not necessarily mm-hmm. something to avoid. I talk a little bit about that, TJ. Yeah, so this is another one that I really struggled with because I didn't really know what the takeaway was at first because at first it just looked like the percentages I ran um, looked pretty similar to quarterback in terms of winning and uh, not really just needing to be efficient. But I thought about it more and talked to some guys more. Uh, the reason we see tight ends on winning teams perform very well is kind of why we see running backs on winning teams perform very very well because they're scoring generally from uh, very close in uh, to the end zone. They're not getting those big splash plays like wide receivers are. So if you're winning, you're probably on uh, an efficient offense or at least an offense that's going to perform very efficiently against that defense, uh, which means you're going to be able to drive down the field get those scores uh, really close to the end zone, and that's going to benefit your running back and tight end. And to that same note, a stat that I think is really important and I think um, maybe gets overlooked a little bit when people are setting traditional lineups is red zone usage, and it's so important for tight ends. If you could find a tight end that's not just getting a huge – number of red zone targets, but a huge market share of red zone targets. So if his team, if he's seen 25% uh, of his team's red zone targets, but all of a sudden his team is in a really, really good situation where maybe they've four or five games against a uh, really tough defenses, that 25% market share might be less than one target a game. Well, now if they're going to throw six, seven times in the red zone, all of a sudden, now your your tight end might be seeing two or three red zone targets and really have a good chance to score a touchdown. So uh, that winning, being on that winning team and having a huge chunk of the red zone share is really important for tight ends. Kind of like that Gronkowski character. That guy can just do whatever he wants against anyone. <laughs> Things just don't hurt him though. No, not, I don't think anything hurts him good except point. for uh, a couple bottles of gray, couple bottles of gray goose when I hurt him. <laughs> <laughs> good right, stuff, man. TJ, thanks for joining us today. And and before we wrap it up, tell all our listeners where they can find your work. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at TJ Hernandez. All of my DFS work you can find at 444.com. Chris Raybon and I co-host the DFS MVP podcast. And I just launched a little side project. We talked a little bit about DFS. If if you want some DFS education, you can find it at rostercoach.com. All right, and I strongly suggest everyone, again, even if you're not a daily fantasy player, go check out TJ's work. It can help you with those weekly lineup decisions. It can even help you see some trends and make some roster decisions that will help you in the long run. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with more Dynasty Blueprints.